Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Having a good time at the State Fair is pretty much a given. There's a whole slew of events and activities for the entire family to enjoy. The fair hosts six stages for live music performances. You can check out the rooster crowing contest or even see who has grown the best okra. Since 1855, the State Fair has been a gathering place for rural and urban Tennesseans. Later this hour, we'll head out to the the fair and learn more about its history. But first, last week... Tennessee joined several other conservative states banning abortions at all stages of pregnancy. The total ban is one of the most restrictive in the country, with no exceptions for rape or incest, and a narrow legal defense for physicians performing abortions to save the life of a patient. Joining us to talk more about what this means for Tennesseans, we have WPLN reporters Paige Flager and Blake Farmer. Paige and Blake, thanks so much for being with us today. Happy to do it. Thanks for having us. So, Blake, how did this ban, how is this ban different from what we've already, that's already been in place since Roe v. Wade was overturned? Well, so, you know, a a few days after Roe v. Wade was overturned, Tennessee's six-week abortion ban um, took effect, which had never been in effect before. Um, And, you know, really, that law is almost as strict as what's in effect now. There were no real exceptions in it. The difference now, what what changed uh, late last week, is that there are no abortions allowed, even in those first few weeks of gestation, you know, when many people wouldn't realize that they're pregnant anyway. Um, So, you know, there was one abortion clinic here in Middle Tennessee that was still trying to continue under that six-week abortion ban. It's called Carafem in Mount Juliet. They were offering medication abortions, but now they have also had to stop offering the services as well because, you know, this really is a total ban. So last Thursday, you and Paige both spread out across the region to cover the reactions on the ground from each side of this divide. What did you hear from folks? Well, um, well, first we're going to hear from Ruth. She was one of a handful of protesters still outside that Carafem clinic in Mount Juliet. Uh, there were signs propped up on the sidewalk saying babies are murdered here. So some pretty graphic language, um, even though abortions had already stopped. There's still a lot of pill abortions that are going to be being done. So moms should still know that this is not right. Um, it's very harmful. and. There's always another option. There's never a reason that a living human being has to die. Compassionate healthcare exists in a lot of gray areas. And now Governor Bill Lee and the General Assembly have made your doctors criminal for providing compassionate, ethical, standard healthcare. That second voice that you heard was Dr. Amy Bono. She was one of many physicians who spoke out about their concern about this new law last week. So you, as we have reported, the physicians are at most legal risk. And a lot of them showed up to protest last week. Paige, what did they tell you? Yeah, there was just a lot of fear from these physicians. They're afraid that when they provide care to their patients that they could end up getting tied up in court, which could prevent them from caring for other patients or maybe even lead to them losing their medical license and having to stop practicing altogether. Um, One physician that I met, uh, Diva Sharma, described the law like this. 
The abortion ban that was passed by Governor Lee essentially is forcing us to sit back and watch our patients die without delivering life-saving medical care. And to me, that's absolutely unacceptable. Other doctors are kind of anticipating this too. They feel like they're going to end up in these situations where they're going to need to choose between their medical training and potentially breaking the law. Hmm. You know, there's a huge concern among doctors about this particular part of the state law dealing with the life of a pregnant person. You reported that some lawyers do not believe that there is a true exception for the life of the patient, despite what's been reported. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the word exception does not actually appear in Tennessee's law like it does in other states like, say, Texas. Um, instead, our law includes something that's called an affirmative defense. And the way that that works is basically under Tennessee's new law, a physician that provides an abortion opens themselves up to a felony charge, period. It kind of it doesn't matter what the circumstances were that led to them making the decision that that abortion was necessary. And only after they're charged will they be able to kind of prove that this procedure was necessary to save the life of the pregnant person or to prevent some serious harm from, from happening to them. Um, and a lot of the physicians that I spoke to say basically that this creates kind of a chilling effect um, where there might be more hesitation during a medical emergency where every second counts. What about the people who passed the law? Blake, have we heard from any of the state lawmakers who voted for this law? Well, uh, you know, from the guy who signed this into law, Governor Bill Lee, he was asked about the exception thing that Paige talking about last week, and he seemed to think the law would still make an allowance for abortions when needed to save someone's life. Our colleague, Blaze Ganey, uh, we've kind of all been working together on this stuff, but he covers the state capitol and sent out a survey to all of the state lawmakers uh, in the last few weeks. Unfortunately, we only heard back from Democrats, and of course, they're the ones who voted against this abortion ban originally. The survey was asking whether they would entertain an exception for rape and incest mm. um, or for anyone who was under 15 years old. Um, Republicans just didn't talk on tape or, or respond to us uh, in that simple survey. But we did hear from Tennessee Right to Life, which is the organization that has been writing these laws. And their top attorney says the law is written just as they intended. So, so you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of openness to tweaking. Well, how likely is it that lawmakers will revisit this next session? Paige? Yeah, I, I did some research um, as we were leading up to this week, and I listened back to um, when this bill was being discussed on the House floor in 2019, and one of the representatives who introduced this bill um, basically said, you know, if if they want to, if future legislatures want to, they can take up the idea of adding more specific exceptions, say, in the case of rape or incest. So they were sort of kicking the can down the road because they weren't sure when exactly this, this bill would become the law. Um, whether or not that is going to happen kind of remains to be seen. Some Democratic lawmakers and advocates have been calling for a special session before January in hopes of at least adding sort of that explicit exception for the life of the pregnant person, um, because they're really concerned that, that this could potentially lead to people dying. Mm. One thing we can count on for sure is that there will be more births in Tennessee in the coming months and years. And Blake, you visited a crisis pregnancy center in Old Hickory. Are they preparing for an influx in patients? 
You know, I thought the answer to that question uh, would be an automatic. Oh, yes, we were expecting it. And it was it was a little more complicated than that. Um, you know, this pregnancy center I was at uh, in Old Hickory um, was actually super quiet last week because uh, there's happened to be a big national conference for crisis pregnancy centers last week out in uh, Arizona. Um, they are opening a second site in Lebanon soon, though that was kind of in the works before Roe v. Wade was overturned. They do expect they'll serve more people. Uh, who are basically in crisis with a pregnancy, though they're not exactly seeing that big influx just yet, even though we've sort of seen this coming over the last uh, couple of months. You know, it's tricky for crisis pregnancy centers because many of them have operated rather quietly. Often they get referrals by word of mouth, often through local churches. So now you may have far more people needing support with an unplanned pregnancy that are in no way affiliated with a church or anything. But um, these crisis pregnancy centers also know that promoting themselves publicly kind of comes with a little bit of risk. We've already seen uh, one in downtown Nashville get some sort of Molotov cocktail thrown through the front window. Um, So they're taking security concerns even more seriously as emotions obviously are running very high now as abortion rights have been stripped from Tennesseans. That was WPLN healthcare reporter Blake Farmer. He was joined by WPLN criminal justice reporter Paige Flager. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to the fair. How did the first one get started back in the mid-19th century? Wow. And what have, how has it changed over the years? Plus, we want to hear from you. Are you a fairgoer? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. The State Fair was last week. It's a Tennessee tradition that's been going on for well over a century. It's an event designed to uplift our state's agriculture with all kinds of livestock shows and competitions for everything from hay bales to watermelons, not to mention the rides and plenty of delicious fried foods like funnel cakes, and the corn dogs. There is a lot going on from presentations about dairy farming. This is called a rotary barn. There are 72 cows riding a merry-go-round in a circle. To neon lit rides on the midway. To original music. There's a little something for everyone. I really love it. I think it's great for the community. I think it's great for the economy. Um, And I I just think it's overall a big win. Well, I got a uh, three-year-old, so I just brought him so he can look up at time. Well, I just love fairs. Love is like a truck. That was Tammy Maggart, Jay Jones, and Stan Webster. Now let's learn a little bit about the history of the State Fair. Here to help us with that is Kelly Serco from Metro Archives. Kelly, thank you for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. So you went through and processed the State Fair records in the archive. What compelled you to do that? It was one of those collections that had just been sitting there for quite a number of years and we you know there's been some interest in the state fair records so i just decided one day on a lark just to mm-hmm. start processing and get dig into them how long did it take you it took about 3 months okay 
So, you know, what did you learn about its origins? Where did it get started? It started in 1855. It was originally at the Walnut Race Course, which was about a, within a mile of Public Square. And it kind of moved around a little bit over the years until 1906 when it went to what is the Nashville Fairgrounds now. And it stayed there until last year when it moved to Wilson County. I heard horse racing was a big draw. It was huge. Okay. It was huge. I mean, horse, horses were always huge in Nashville. But, yes, horse racing was a huge part. It was reported not just nationally but internationally in the papers. Okay, so you also poured through the organizers' meeting minutes, right? I did. Tell us about what you found there. You know, they have been talking about adequate and efficient parking for as far back as I was able to go. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So we know it's a generational issue, not just a, a current modern-day problem we're all Correct. facing. Correct, yes. What were some of the other things they were discussing? Uh, they were discussing a lot had to do with just the overall organization of how to set up the exhibits, um, a lot of it had to do with um, getting the the exhibitors there, and a lot of it had to do with just the logistics and day-to-day things that the fair board was involved with. So um, the, the priorities have always been to exhibit agriculture here in Tennessee, but mm-hmm. um, it's... it's um, it's been an interesting read. Okay, yeah. I'm sure. I'm curious about maybe some of the performers, because I know the entertainment is a big part of today and the current fair, more modern version. Mm-hmm. Did they discuss like having any big performers maybe back in the 60s or 50s? Not that I can recall. I didn't get a chance to read the minutes as in-depth as I wanted to because I still had to process the collection. But um, I don't remember them talking about anybody huge coming in, although I'm sure there were. But um, Hmm. I wonder, what did your research tell you about the significance of this fair to our city and region? What it mainly told me is that agriculture has had a huge tradition of being basically the lifeblood of the South and especially in Tennessee. Um, the fair itself has been a way to promote that, not just agriculture, but also horticulture and the arts and also just entertainment, the rides, the musical performances. The fair has been very wrapped up in keeping that tradition for us. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the Tennessee State Fair. We've been looking into the fair's history with Kelly Serco from the Metro Archives, but what about its present? My next guest is Executive Director of the Wilson County Tennessee State Fair, Helen. Thanks so much for being with us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's awesome. So tell me, you're from Wilson County, right? I am from Wilson County. Uh, I, I was born here in Wilson County. Uh, matter of fact, uh, our uh, we have a family farm that it's been in the uh, uh, family for over 200 years. And uh, uh, John Sevier, uh, who was governor at that time, uh, his name was signed on the deed. So I, my roots run deep here in Tennessee. Okay. Now tell me, did you grow up going to the state fair? Uh, yes, I did get to go to the state fair, uh, and my my memories of going to the state fair was uh, riding the big roller coaster as I was growing up, and then in 4-H, uh, our 4-H group would uh, carry a judging team down to the state fair, and then my kids also showed uh, livestock at the state fair. 
there in Nashville. So the life has been based around the State Fair. That's great. So with that in mind, tell me, what makes this time of year, what makes it so special to you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, this is fair season in Tennessee and and, in, and the entire country. Uh, you know, fairs are a mirror of their community. Uh, we need a fair in every county uh, to showcase the best of their county. And the state fair needs to be the part of where those groups can come together and showcase the best of Tennessee. Would you put Tennessee State Fair up against any other state in the country? Uh, yes, I would. There are a lot of good state fairs out there. Uh, the Wilson County Fair uh, has been uh, going, Wilson County Promotion has been producing uh, the Wilson County Fair uh, since 1979. Uh, and so it has grown uh, quite a bit over the years. Uh, and thus the reason that uh, it's been the largest uh, county fair in uh, the state of Tennessee. Tell me how. how uh, and thus. I'm sorry. And that's the reason and, and thus the reason for uh, the state fair uh, being combined with the Wilson County Fair to to make it uh, a true state fair. So tell me, how did you first get involved? OK, uh, I was actually a volunteer for the Wilson County Fair years ago. It's, it's been oh probably 25 years ago. Mm. And uh, then um, uh, I was asked to work in the fair office, uh, and uh, I, I did, and uh, became uh, just as a part-time. Uh, and then when we needed to start uh, growing uh, more, uh, 20 years ago, I started working in the office and, and doing more uh, about the production of it, the behind-the-scenes things. We have got a, a, a great executive committee uh, that have been here for a long time. We've got 300 board members and we've got over 1,800 volunteers that put on this fair. So we've got a tremendous volunteer organization that uh, uh, that makes this the, the special uh, fair that it is. Okay, so you got 1,800 volunteers, 300 board members. You know, this happens once a year in August. I have to imagine the planning it could take. It can be a little bit more than a year-round thing. Am I right about that? We are already planning for 2023 and a little bit for 2024. So, uh, and and talking about our our traffic, uh, I, I heard the the lady before me uh, talking about the traffic and that kind of thing, and. Uh, you know, I guess that's an ongoing thing all the way through history. Hmm. Uh, but all of that is in process uh, to make things better for, for years to come. So uh, we, we are we are already in that planning process. That's fantastic. So, you know, last year, the Tennessee State Fair relocated to Lebanon, to Lebanon after it merged with the Wilson County Fair, like you mentioned. You oversaw that merger. Tell me, how did that change the fair itself? Uh, really, it is still the Wilson County Fair, and we were able to add so many more things, and we will continue to do that. Um, but it is still the same fair. Uh, you know, we, we tried to just do the very best we could with putting on the very best fair we could. Uh, and so now we have the opportunity to showcase the best of Wilson County, as we've always done. But now we can showcase uh, what is so good about Tennessee. And every county in the state uh, participated this year. We had a Travel Tennessee exhibit, and we had a, an exhibit built 
to where every county could put items to showcase what was unique, uh, what was special uh, about their county. And we hope that that will drive tourism to every county. And we will continue to do this for, for years on. We had the entire state of Tennessee painted on the floor. Uh, it was divided by East, Middle, and West Tennessee. It was red, white, and blue. But every county was outlined with their name on it and their exhibit set on that piece of county. So it was an educational piece. Um, plus, uh, it was able for every county to uh, participate in the state fair. Uh, Kelly, from your research, how has the state fair changed over the years? Well, that's a very good question. Um, it's grown from what I can tell from uh, it was extremely successful in 1855. And it just uh, I know interest waned a little bit in the later 19th century. But um, it's just just its sheer growth from acquiring rides to musical performances to incorporating art along with the agricultural element. Um, it's it just seems to have grown exponentially over the years. I understand the fair was only preempted twice in the past century for World War II and more recently the pandemic. So what does that tell us about the port importance of this fair to our community? Uh, it's extremely important. I mean, this is this is um, like like was said. Um, it's just a way for all the counties in Tennessee to get together and kind of show off what's best about Tennessee. Um, and, you know, if the only things that stop us from having an having a fair are COVID-19 and gas and tire rationing, then I think hmm. the fair is exceedingly important. Now, you have a lot of beautiful pictures in yes. the archives. Can you paint the picture and tell us what some of those photos look like, the, what the fair looked like in the 60s? It, the photos are beautiful and most of them are Tennessean photographs, but we have a lot of photos of the exhibits um, you can see just giant tobacco leaves hanging in the stalls. You can see different species of cattle. Um, just the exhibits are gorgeous. There's also amusement rides, photos, and just people enjoying themselves in general at the fair. Um, the, it's uh, it, They're pretty incredible photos. You know, obviously our state's agriculture is centerpiece for this longstanding tradition. Helen, how big of a role do our farmers play in the fair? Well, we are an agriculture fair. Uh, we've got over 100 uh, livestock shows uh, that happen all 10 days of the fair. We've had to uh, uh, put our horse shows uh, the weekend or two weekends before uh, to make all of that work because of, of being in the need of, of some more livestock barns. So uh, it is significant, and it's so significant for our youth. Uh, that's what these grounds were bought for uh, back in 1974, uh, was because of our youth to have a place to showcase. And we, we know that at the year of the pandemic, when we did not have an actual fair, we went ahead and held our livestock shows because that was the only time that a lot of our youth from across the state of Tennessee and even uh, across the, the state line uh, had the opportunity to show their livestock that year. You know, keeping that in mind, I can imagine the fair is maybe the only exposure, you know, from folks and youth from urban areas that so they can see this industry and lifestyle of agriculture. How important is it to you that kids from different parts who don't grow up in the agriculture lifestyle 
see what happens at the state fair. It is very important, uh, and, and we take that responsibility seriously. Um, you know, we've always heard that we need to be sharing that brown milk don't come from, our, our chocolate milk don't come from brown cows. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves in being the largest outdoor classroom in Tennessee, and we need to even do a better job of that to teach people where their food comes from. And if it wasn't for these farmers, uh, we would all uh, be in a, in, in a lot worse shape, okay, because they are definitely the ones that, that provide that food uh, for us to eat and, and the clothes that are on our back. So we need to be very mindful. We need to be sharing that with our young people as well of adult, as adults, because we understand that the um, people are three to five times removed from the family farm, and they don't have that experience. So we, we are very mindful of that. Now, you mentioned that you all are already planning for 2023 State Fair and 2024s. What's in store? Yes, that's correct. What's in store for next year's fair? Well, one, one of the things, there will be a new theme. Uh, we have always used a, a new theme to breathe, breathe, breathe new life into the fair. We also use a Tennessee agriculture commodity focus uh, to promote the fair as well as educate. This year was the year of hay, and we had hay from all across the state of Tennessee entered in our new uh, state perishable building uh, and UT Ag Extension agents, UT and TSU Ag Extension agents from across the state gathered those uh, entries, uh, and it was phenomenal. Uh, and so we want that to grow. Uh, you know, we, we had tobacco. I know Kelly uh, talked about the large tobacco leaves in, in the picture. And I thought, you know, it was so neat because tobacco is not grown in Wilson County now, but it is other part. We even had cotton here. Cotton is not grown in Wilson County. Uh, and we had the Tennessee Ag Commodities uh, here this year. And that was just a start. We're, we're wanting to grow that to promote and educate our fair going public also. That is Helen McPeak, the executive director of the Wilson County, Tennessee State Fair. She was joined by Kelly Serco from Metro Archives. Thanks to you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll turn to the heart of the State Fair, the farmers. Tweet us your memories of the Tennessee State Fair at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalele Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Tennessee State Fair has all the decadent foods you can eat and a ton of entertainment to enjoy. But the lifeblood of the fair is agriculture and the farmers who grow the food we eat. From the contests on who has the best fruits and vegetables to who has the prime livestock. We've been talking about the past and present of the State Fair. Now let's get into how it relates to our agricultural communities and the future of agriculture in Tennessee with a few farmers. I'd like to introduce my guests, John C. Rickards, 
Ricketts, professor of agriculture and extension education at Tennessee State University and a previous guest of ours, Cynthia Capers, owner of Hennessy Farm. John and Cynthia, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John, tell me, you come from generations of farmers, right? Pretty much. Yeah? Pretty much. Did you grow up going to the fair? Yes. Grew up going to the Tennessee State Fair in Nashville and also the Wilson County Fair. What was it like? Oh, man. Uh, for a kid, it's a lot of fun. It's an opportunity to, uh, to uh, like you said, eat all of the <laughs> different foods that, that are everywhere, but... But my favorite part was always seeing the the agriculture exhibits. I mean, they you can you can see pumpkins as as large as a Volkswagen wow. some years. Okay, <laughs> it's just pretty impressive uh, to see some of those things. Now you are a professor of agriculture. What role do you see the fair playing for all of us? You know, especially when it comes to understanding where we live and what we live on. You know, this whole show has been talking about the fair as a form of education, as a form of marketing, uh, what agriculture is all about. And and to me, that's what the fair does. I'm actually a professor of agricultural education. And uh, I love how Helen said, this is our largest outdoor classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's exactly that. Um, we, we make a lot of assumptions as folks in agriculture about what people know, but it's... Um, pretty frightening sometimes to see what they don't know. So, uh, you know, we have music appreciation that's required in the curriculum. We, we, we learn about our history, and we do that for, for reasons. And, and, and agriculture is really no different. We have to stay aware of uh, what makes us great uh, as, as a country. You're a professor. What do you notice your, your students when they become enlightened, enlightened or that light bulb switches in their heads? Well, those experiences uh, with my students and with anybody else who, who walks through the thousands of exhibits, it, it could change the career that they they go off on. It, even if I'm a, a producer and I'm going into production, I may see some some varieties and interact with some producers that are doing something that I don't do. And, and, and that helps me uh, go in a different direction or diversify or, or stay viable in some way, shape, or form. You know, people aren't really connected to the earth in the way farmers are. And we, like you said, we overlook the importance of agriculture. So how does the state's fair specifically, how does it help to highlight why agriculture is so important? Well, people often overlook it and they aren't connected, but they want to be. <laughs> they want to be connected and they don't want to overlook it because when they see it, it really has an impact. It has an impact on um, the decisions that they make in the grocery store. Uh, it has an impact sometimes in the decisions that they make when it comes to things as simple as voting. Mm. <laughs> you know, you, you, you consider some issues you never thought about before and, and what kind of world it would be. Now, Cynthia, I remember from our last conversation, you grew up in Chicago in a very urban environment. Tell me, did you ever get to go to the State Fair in Illinois? Uh, when I grew up in Chicago on the State Fair, no, I did not get a chance to go to the State Fair. But um, that was something that I heard about because, you know, Chicago is a long way from Springfield, Illinois. And so it would be it would have been a road trip. And not too many of us urban kids were going to get a chance to do that. So when you moved to Nashville, 
and became a poultry farmer. Do you remember the first time you went to the fair? Well, I went to the fair the first time. I wasn't a poultry farmer. I was just a, a nurse that had been relocated to the Nashville area, and I took my children because I had never been to the state fair, and it was something that I felt that I had missed as a child. And so uh, I took them so we could just kind of see the whole lay of the land and what it really meant to be at a state fair when it was at the fairground. What was that like for you? Um, you know, I'll tell you, it was such a opening to what we as units, we're kind of like the separate little unit in, in, in our culture. And that particular unit, which is huge in a rural setting, it means to a rurality, it's not something that you really deal with on, a, on an urban level. So I... I just enjoyed the whole process and giving my children a chance to see a whole other side of what um, America can do. I just want to tell our listeners, Cynthia is traveling today, so the audio is a little patchy. So thanks for bearing with us. Um, yeah, thank you, Cynthia, for being with us. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the Wilson County, Tennessee State Fair. So, you know, one of the major attractions at the fair are the animal and livestock competitions. Cynthia, have you considered entering some of your birds into the competition? It's so funny that you've asked that because I get asked to show some of my exotic birds, some of my heritage breeds uh, to the fair, and I've always declined uh, because I, uh, then that would mean I'd have to shampoo these birds, and that's probably not going to happen, but I'm <laughs> <care of> <laughs> I've got to get them more dialed up than I do myself. So, um, no, but then again, um, because I keep being asked, you know, I think I may end up doing that at some point in time. What type of exotic birds do you have that you're considering, you know, entering? Um, I probably enter my uh, Polish uh, boys and girls, maybe a Seabright. These are all heritage breeds that are going extinct, which are part of my conservation uh, that I've got going on at the Wonderful. Now, John, how about you? Do you have any livestock on your farm that you would think about showing off? We have plenty of livestock, but uh, my daughter, uh, you heard Helen talk about the youth. My daughter's the one that that has um, meat goats, uh, <laughs> and also she leases a, um, a, a ewe, a dorset ewe, and so she's she was at the fair uh, nearly every day <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, showing showing her animals in one way or another. I wonder how much work does it take to get an animal ready? It takes uh, a lot of work, and, and that's the best part about youth showing an animal. You know, it's the responsibility that they have to have. You know, if you wake up and you're sick, you still have to feed the animals, mm -hmm. right? You still have to go to the barn. It doesn't matter how cold it is. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a process that happens early morning, late evening, all day, and it happens all year long. And so it's a ton of work. You know, she mentioned shampooing the birds. We also put, um, my daughter puts our animals through the salon, if you will. Okay. Uh, that's always a lot of fun when people come by the fair. Not not just what happens in the show ring, but but out in the stalls where you're, uh, 
get we have them in the salon. They folks have lots of questions <laughs> <laughs> about about how how all that goes down. I wonder what has your daughter said about the experience of you know caring for these animals and preparing them for show. She's she's crazy about it. Um, she 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 loves the show, but she loves the animals. She loves being with the animals. You know. One of the big things is the feed bill that comes along with having livestock. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I told her one time about 10 years ago, I said, you know, I said, I could buy you a pool for what I have to pay on feed. You know, you, sh you sure you don't just want a pool to lounge around in all summer? No, no, I want my livestock. Okay. So here she is, a senior. She forewent the pool for several years. Okay. Uh, because all those uh, goats and sheep and, and pigs that she's... She's worked with. Do you think she's going to carry on the family tradition and enter farming? I think uh, she'll probably be carry on the tradition. Uh, I have a boy, too, of part-time farming. In Tennessee, there's a lot of us that, that have a, a, a regular job and, mm -hmm. and farm at night and weekends. Okay. Now, you know, Cynthia, looking back, do you feel that, like, the fair was accessible to you as an inner-city kid? to say that it was not accessible in that uh, it would have meant for many of us traveling to the location of the state fair, which is usually in middle America areas. It's normally not in an urban area, and uh, it makes it quite difficult. Uh, urban kids are used to getting on metro or city buses. It's not something that they're going to be able to do easily, no. What do you think it would have meant for you on your path had you had access a lot sooner? Um, you know, back then, I, I was an odd, well, I'm still odd, uh, hmm. person out, but I think that um, having more opportunity to see what was happening with the animals and have more of the I mean, I didn't get a chance to do that until I was an adult. And I think I think it would have made a, a, a little on how I would have approached farming, how soon I would have gotten involved in it, or maybe I would have gotten involved in it. You know, maybe I would have made a decision uh, not to. I'm, I'm not, you know, looking back on it, maybe I would have felt differently about it. I'm almost uh, happy that I did get a chance as an adult to make that decision. But at the same time, I can see the beauty of the children and what they were able to get from farming and the fair uh, as rural children. All right. So, John, let's talk more about the youth. What are ways to get these kids and the youth? What are ways to get them interested in agriculture as a possible career or lifestyle choice? You know, the best way is through 4-H and FFA. Um, FFA is Future Farmers of America, and, 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 and that's associated with our schools. And the, and the 4-H is associated with um, our university systems uh, as a way to carry on the science that happens at the universities and, and, and teach our youth because we've found that we can teach the youth and they will adopt those practices a lot sooner than the adults will. Uh, and so through 4-H and FFA, these youth programs, there's lots of avenues for students, uh, not just students in the rural areas, but also in the urban areas. And what happens is, you know, you may compete in showing your livestock, but maybe it's judging your livestock. Maybe there's there's a agri-science fair that students can compete in, uh, where we look at real problems consumers have and how 
science that that happens can help the farmers and 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 everybody get together. So so through the youth and all of the activities and the competitions that the youth have access to, they can learn about uh, mm-hmm. agriculture. They can learn about the opportunities in agriculture, and then maybe uh, that'll that I know that will open other doors for them as well. Now, Cynthia, really quick, you know, what do you tell young folks about being a young farmer? We got about a minute left. Um, well, it depends on what, uh, what I would say is that it takes discipline, it takes perseverance, uh, some love of whatever animal that it is that you want to take care of. Uh, or maybe you want to be on the land. Maybe the land is just calling you. Maybe it's not a particular animal at all. Maybe it's the land itself. And that you should go for it. I mean, you should um, do whatever you can to have access to that. And it may be harder to do that in an urban setting because those opportunities are not as readily available, but that you should probably reach out and we should try to be much more present with our kids, maybe have more... um, uh, farm days and things in areas where there's no farm. That'd be so awesome. The children would really get a chance to do that. That yeah. is awesome. I want to thank you so much. That is Cynthia Capers, owner of Henna City Farm. She was joined by John Ricketts, Ricketts, professor of agriculture at TSU. Thanks to you both for being with us today. We've just been talking about accessibility. Not so long ago, fairs like the Wilson County, Tennessee State Fair were not open to black folks. So in the decades after the Civil War, black communities across the South began founding their own county fairs. Now, a few times a month, we're taking you out into the community to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, the side of an office building. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. But our goal is to take you back in time to bring our history to life, and to show you what our region has been. It was the home of the very first black fair in the country. The Sumner County Colored Agricultural Fair started in 1865 and came to town every year until 1976. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, went out to Gallatin to meet some folks who remember the fair firsthand. I said if you could just close your eyes and imagine everybody cooking that was cooking out there and fast wheel going, people dancing, having a good time. Ain't nobody in no hurry. They don't start taking stuff down and we still out there. They probably don't took the fast wheel down. We still out there. One or two in the morning. It was just something to behold and it'll never be nothing like the Galton. Old Negro fair again, ever. Nowhere. For Patricia Kelly, the fair wasn't just a historical institution. It was an important part of her childhood. It's also where she met the man she'd marry, Jimmy Kelly Jr., back in the August of 1965. And he said, do you want to take a picture? And I had seen him, but, and he knew I liked him, but <laughs> I didn't know he was going to say. He said, do you want to take a picture? And I, oh, yeah, I flew over there. Patricia still has that snapshot of her and Jimmy from the fair's photo booth. But the fair itself has been gone for a long time now. 48 years ago, the last time the fair was here. I'm telling you, I've just never got it out of my head as a child, and I'm grown, 72, and I still remember the Gallatin Fair, the smell of the food up your nose, and it's still there. I'll never forget that. I just wish my daughter could experience some of that. (laughs) Today, the old fairgrounds isn't much to look at. Out on Blythe Street, sandwiched between a barbecue joint and a housing development, 
It's just an empty lot, surrounded by a tall chain-link fence. So you might not know just by looking at it now, but this unassuming lot has some pretty significant history. The Sumner County Fair was the oldest black-founded fair in America, born barely a year after the end of the Civil War. This is the poster. It is an original. Gallatin historian Velma Brinkley has collected relics from the fair for years. This poster could date back to the 1860s, when the fair was first founded by six local African-American men. John Banks, Willis Baker, Doc Blythe, Henry Ward, Mac Randolph, and Arthur Banks. These men kept it running for decades through all sorts of ups and downs. Those six men were able to weather uh, several wars. They carried that fair through the Great Depression, through fire. The fair meant a lot to this community. Even though it's been more than 40 years since the last fair, the memories are still fresh for the locals. And when those lights came on, you knew that, hey, it's fair week. That's Bill Ligon. He's a retired attorney and former Detroit Pistons player who grew up going to the fair along with his friend Andrew Turner. We lived in the projects. We'd hear the hammering and the beating, and we knew that they were building. And, you know, it went on all night. Yeah, you know, they knew how to gas us up. Bill and Andrew were both in the high school band, which played at the fair every year. Green onions. Green onions. Velma moved to Gallatin after college, so she didn't grow up here like Andrew and Bill did. And there was another fair right across town, the White Fair. Yeah. When they had that fair, did you go to it? No, I didn't. No. no. You did not socialize or fraternize with these people because you, you, that was dangerous. You had farmers over there running uh, the rides and stuff, and they were just not all that welcoming to, to black kids, all right? I mean, you know, you, and this is one of the difficult things that people tend to forget about the 1960s. We were persona non grata just about everywhere you went. Yeah. All right, so you literally cl clung to where, where you were welcome and where you could have a pretty good time. The Sumner County Fair was exactly that kind of place for them. Although white farmers attended, it was really created by the black community for the black community. There were competitions with awards for the best jams, flowers, vegetables, and livestock in the county. But Bill says the competition didn't end there. You were always either trying to outdo the guy next to you, you were trying to outdance this guy over here, you wanted to look better than this person over here. I, I tell people all along that people tease me because you know, I played ball and played professional basketball, I learned competition here. And fashion, according to Andrew, was the biggest competition of all. Nobody was shabby. No, no, no. Going into the fair. You couldn't do that. You dressed up. It's, it's you didn't all get all your hair cut on a particular night. You didn't go. Yeah. Everyone dressed to the nines, with women in evening gowns and men in hats and three-piece suits. Plus, they had to impress all the out-of-towners. But I got a cousin coming from Detroit. Yeah. I got one come from Chicago, yeah. one come from Indianapolis, Louisville, Columbus, Ohio, Washington, D.C., and then they all were relatives coming out of Nashville. Everybody's trying to outdo everybody. At the end of the day, 
this wasn't just a fair. This indeed was homecoming. During the Great Migration between 1910 and 1970, about six million Black Americans moved out of the South to seek opportunities in northern cities, away from Jim Crow laws and the threat of lynching. For those whose families moved away from Sumner County, the fair was a chance to reconnect with their roots. Every home, every Black home in Sumner County was full because the uh, motels we had no, didn't, didn't have any hotels, and whatever kind of motels there might have been didn't rent to blacks. So we always had, that's how the Green Book came about. Quilting. Uh, my grandmother would bring out a pile of quilts. Yeah, my grandmother would bring out a pile of quilts to she and her daughters had quilted. So we slept on those quilts. Because it's going to be. Eight, nine people in the house. Or more. Even though the fair has long been gone, the memory of it still pulls people back. Like Chase Cantrell, whose family moved to Detroit during the Great Migration. So I've been hearing about this fair for years, actually, from my father. His great-great-grandfather, Simon Patterson, was the second president of the Sumner County Fair. Years later, Chase decided to track him down through the newspaper archives. One clipping in particular really caught his eye. Patterson is considered the money king of the Negroes in Sumner County. In that title, the money king, um, it's, it's just interesting because there's so many finance, financing challenges in Detroit and that, that is part of my work that it's like, wow, okay. So I am, I am not the first person in, in this line to have to think through the, the, the connections between community and money and lending and finance. Chase went on to start a nonprofit in Detroit called Building Community Value. He's come to see a connection between his own work and the work his great-great-grandfather did with the Gallatin Fair. When I think about the fair and why it's so important to Black people uh, in 2022, it's the question of what we can build for our own communities, right? And I can look to something like the fair coming out of the Civil War, like it took a lot of audacity, real audacity of the Black people in, in the South to say, we're gonna create something for ourselves that focuses on our own joy. Like, to me, that's an amazing example and model for me as a younger person that, hey, you know, the, the kinds of things I want to build, there are models for this, and there are people who overcame adversity to create them. You know, that gives me, that gives me both solace and it gives me hope. Thanks to everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.